opinions expressed in the following are those of its participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the producers and the Six Talk Podcast Network. Also, the following contains mature material and mild language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. As the podcast now begins on this last day of July, July 31st, 2021, presented by Anime North, this is the Anime Roundtable Canada. Good evening from six points, 10 minutes south of the Anime North compound in the west end of Toronto. Mike Nicholas, joined this time around by James Austin, Kevin Ng, and Jeff Gregg. Mohamed Shamarki is not here this evening. Apparently, he has used all of his talk time for this two-week cycle from last week. Hello? Can you hear me? <laughs> I thought he was going to the Olympics to get that gold medal. Damn. So I'm sure we'll see the bling next time. Damn, Mo. So, so uh, Mo will join us when the, his cycle resets next, next time we're on. I guess on that note... Let's start with when Mo last talked and look back on the Space Heater chat. We said quite a bit, the two of us, last week. James, Jeff, Kevin, I know you have all heard the Space Heater chat, more or less. There's something you want to add to that or anything you that caught your attention when it comes to the Olympics and maybe Japanese pop culture in relation to the Olympics? Just anything that caught your attention. I didn't think they'd play Ace Combat music of all things. <laughs> like, like you know, like a lot of the ones you were naming. Okay, yeah, near. Okay, yeah, Soul Calibur. I'm like, what Ace Combat? Maybe okay. it was a good enough song to just play while people are entering a building. You never know. I thought it was actually the piece of music. I remember they did choose. It and reminded you- me. I gotta put up the YouTube. There is a YouTube of. Uh, that compiled all the pieces of music that were used during the athletes' march. I was like, "Is airplane battling part of the Olympics now?" Like, I must have <laughs> missed something. If ballroom dancing can be, then sure, why not? It's like fighter pilot uh, dancing in the sky. It, it, well, ballroom is. I think ballroom is set to be added in Paris, of all places, right? I mm. before though. I know because they they had the jokes for so many years. Remember. Apparently, mm-hmm. they used to have uh, car racing and boat racing. Well, boat racing and sailboat racing is still there. I didn't know about the car racing. This, uh, was, you know like bef- this was like before the Model T existed. So this was like the newfangled car has been invented. Let's so put it in the Olympics. Turn, so what, turn of the century? Yeah, I think like 1907 or something. It, well, <laughs> would this be as a, actually part of competition or as part of a cultural thing? Because no, like it was an event, apparently. Okay, you you know the original intent of the Olympics was both competition and culture. That was that was like part of that uh, uh, Baron de Coupertin vision he had all those years ago. It was meant to. I think. I think a, there was supposed to be a cultural component, which never really. It's sort of there, but it it's sort of informally there. Just for reference. So, yeah, it's after one week. And just for reference here, after almost one week of the Olympics, 
our Canadian Olympic team has won, I think, what is it, 12 medals? Every single one of them by, by uh, women athletes. Way to go. We know now, so we know, we know who, who's keeping up at their end of the bargain and all of this. Anyway, well, 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 anything else that stuck out to you that we missed and is worth kind of mentioning in all of this mess? Yes, when you think about it and you said, yes, of course, when uh, Team Japan comes in, they have to have the classic uh, Dragon Quest music on. And you're just thinking to yourself, well, if they're coming in in crazy like getups that are sponsored by local clothing designers, all that stuff, they might as well have had them, like I guess, in Dragon Quest cosplay. But if they want to go the extra mile, they should have had like a crossover with Demon Slayer and just have that music on there, too. <laughs> would sony have given uh approval uh, that's I, i'd say that's a fair question well given uh what we saw of the documents that had been uh leaked out uh in regards to what what could have been because they went through many different um organizers for the opening ceremonies because they went through like various scandals it seems like uh the Japanese Olympic Committee and the IOC couldn't find one person in their Rolodex who didn't have uh, some spider or something in their closet that was going to send them uh, away, right? But they were <laughs> definitely leaning into that cool Japan, weren't they? They From maybe the they went to 280 uh, document, and I think it was like weekly uh, Bunshin uh, in Japan that was reporting on that, and that they were going to lean into Akira and supposedly have like opening with Akira's iconic red bike bursting through the venue and stuff like that. Like they were going to go full in on that and a few other things, which sounds kind of wild. If, if, that's, if that's true, that bike probably exists somewhere because that's not something you can just put together in the last year. So if, if this was planned, there is a apparently functional or at least stage prop functional Akira motorcycle that can do the slide thing that's referenced everywhere somewhere hidden in whoever the, the organizers are's uh, warehouse or something. Yeah, well, at least we know they probably made good on those uh, jackets, right? Since Funimation is selling them exclusively on their store for a ridiculous amount of money. Oh, yeah. What, a Canada's jacket? Or is that what you're referring to? Yeah, the Akira mm -hmm. jacket, the one that... Uh... Yeah. Well, we talked all, we've talked. we talked a little quasi-fashion. Well, it's only in a few hundred bucks. Episode. 300? It's only a few hundred bucks, isn't it? Yeah, well, I'm thinking more, you have American, then we gotta get to Canadian, you gotta oh, ship yeah. it to us, and so, like, it all adds up, right? No, it's because, right I think why I say that is because I know, like, Really good leather jackets are usually four digits. Well, that's true too, right? So yeah. Well, what what do we know about the material for this? Uh, Is it leather? They did use an Italian uh, tannery. I just, I just assume it's decent quality. I just, I wouldn't really know. But well, it, it's pretty interesting that they would uh, do that whole replicating thing. I think it's a pretty good tactic to try and you know, put something out as a special niche product. Hmm. Well, yeah. It, it, I, 
and it's licensed. We've talked a lot about the companies wanting to make sure their designs are copywritten now. I mean, Demon Slayer, most notably. We talked a bit about Ghibli last week. Mm-hmm. But okay, I can see it. And I could see it working out to some degree. Okay. So anything else you want to bring up? or We are uh, more making reference to the pop culture references, but anything in the wider Olympic stuff that uh, Mo and I ended up talking about that would have had your attention? It's just really sad how Japan was so behind on their vaccination program that they allowed this situation to unfold the way that it has to Hmm. now not only were you already going to be losing money because let's face it almost every olympics is a money loss leader for the country that hosts it but now they're just hemorrhaging money out of every orifice because nobody can spectate and you could have maybe had some people spectate if they were able to procure vaccines, if they were able to roll out the program earlier, if they were not promoting people to travel domestically despite cases, because that was a situation last year during Golden Week. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's just sad. Wow. There are some people spectating, though, at certain outdoor events, whether it be triathlon or whatever, and we saw them uh, with the uh, big Gundam statue where, I think it was part of the bicycle part of the triathlon, them going around and the poor BBC uh, announcer just trying to announce Gundam, and it just wasn't working. (laughs) He just just, (laughs) in the robot. Point stands, though, James. Like They could have at least made a little more of that cost back if they I think were able to, you know, get more people vaccinated. There's there's just... also a there's also a Japanese hesitancy for vaccines as well that they have to compete against as well. Mm, like despite how despite mm-hmm. how good Japan is about masks, which like I do want like I think that was one thing I wanted to say. Like you know, there are spikes in Japan and um, it's it's really terrible, like with, if you look at Tokyo, but I think the spike in Tokyo was about like 2000. Tokyo's population isn't that dissimilar to Ontario where we were getting up to what, like 4000? So like, I, you know, it, it's definitely not a great thing that cases are spiking there, but imagine how terrible things would be if Japan didn't have a mass culture. Um, like you know, kind of this weird soft good for them. Um, it's like, weird I'm... though because they're in this bad situation, but they're still having the thing where a lot of people can't work, uh, basically work from home or whatever. They're going into work and stuff like that, and they said they're still pushing people in the rush hour into those trains. Yeah. So that's not a good thing for virus transmission and stuff like that. One so step forward, five back. But they had so many things, like as you said vaccine hesitancy the other thing where they wanted a domestic producer like to do their vaccine first so they were at the back of the line even behind us for getting their vaccines to them and then they had to go through extra hurdles of approval because the japanese demanded it so 
there was so much bureaucracy that is so used to the system for them. But in this case, the virus does not give a fuck. It's so the, it's the they Shin Godzilla know. situation. If, if anyone's but seen luckily, that movie, there is like some it's... good things. As you said, the mass culture and a few other things. But unfortunately, it was going to bite them in the ass sooner or later, right? It's unfortunate. Yeah, and this is... And, and in the broader sense, Yoshihide Suga, we mentioned a, a few times during the Space Heater last week, his political neck is now on the line. And I think you and thank you for giving us a sense of that of the actual vaccination angle because you kind of enlightened me, I admit. And we'll put up a, a little bit more about that part of the story. Wow, I guess it's a question of they say all these people are angry, but then the question is the LDP has such a stranglehold over Japan. It's like, so who are they going to vote for this older population and stuff like that? Because that's the one who keeps them in power again and again. And then some of them that were part of the LDP and these different cliques within it sometimes just start their own new party, right? So it's like, are they basically a variation of the same thing? Well, we, I mean, we were talking off air about bringing in new blood into politics. You thought, you thought the youth were disillusioned with politics in much of North America. And I've heard people that were in Japan, stuff like that, and they're just trying to get through the workday and they're not given a care about what the politicians are doing. They're like, okay, you made this. I just want to get through my life. I'll find a way to deal with it. Whereas the older population is the one that's engaged in complaining, but they, it's like they may complain on Twitter and all this other stuff, but to do an actual, um, get the job done and try to make real change. They're not there yet compared to uh, their other counterparts in the world, which is unfortunate. Hmm. But it's tough too, because there are all the different aspects of culture and the way they have been brought up as an Island nation that we understand too. And that's a part of the process too, right? So there's so many moving parts. Okay. Yeah. And well, that's, you know that's that's another story, I suppose. And we're like, looking. I, mean, I want at to it touch on it from yes. our perspective too, right? Like our own mm -hmm. side, I guess Western perspective is different, right, than their perspective too. And that's well, yeah. we always have to keep in mind. But one day, right, something might tip the balance, and then we'll see a change. But it, it's going to be a long time coming because, as we know, with their population being one of the oldest in the world, it's going to be a long time coming before we see that generational change. Hmm. Okay, any other angles you want to start working on here from the space heater? Or do you I want could, me to bring up a couple more? I was going to say the end of the space heater where you guys did talk briefly about uh, Tomorrow's Leaves, which was the uh, animated uh, anime short from uh, Studio uh, Pontiac. Okay, and I watched... I watched I watched it kind of in passing during my lunch today, so I, I was I was I was biting into my uh, Tim Hortons wrap while trying to watch it at the same time. I, I see the Captain Planet reference that I think Mo made. Yeah, it definitely has that type of feel to it. I love the explanation on the official Olympics uh, YouTube. This is how they explain tomorrow's leaves. They said. Tomorrow's Leaves is hand-drawn animated 
short film that provides fresh perspective on the Olympic values of excellence, friendship, and respect. And I'm thinking about that in the fact that we know where the Olympics is today and stuff like that and how they forced Japan to basically run these Olympics. And it's just, if they knew what they knew now, right? I don't think they would have that type of animated chart, which was probably planned many years before. I think it would be a more cynical, like these overlords draining money from the host city and nation and all these corporations around the world for their own benefit. They, they It's just, think about, like, we, we've had this discussion before. Who had the right to pull the plug? Was it the Japanese central government? Or was it the IOC? And people and were learning that now, right? That the we're learning, contract- yeah, we've started to learn the, and if you're to believe John Oliver, the way John Oliver profiled it, it wasn't the central government, but they had to stand by the call. As all the IOC, was, as the all IOC companies the lines have to be, right? But I guess it gets a little bit more interesting because when you talk about it, or when I, as I talked with others about it, the hope was always for that when Japan was awarded the games, the games would happen a little later in the year, probably into the uh, like into September when the weather, when rainy season and the hot weather wouldn't be as much a factor. But that would be when school began. For, for much of the Western world. And, I, and that might have been the, the determining factor for the IOC. They wanted it so the kids who are on summer break could enjoy. And participate. Like a lot of these competitors are under 18. Oh, I think, I think we can get some exemptions here. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think we can get a, I think we can get a parent's note. I think, I, think, I think an Olympic committee can write a good parent's note for that. You imagine Personally. if you were if you were a kid and like you were you qualified for the Olympics, but your parents were like, "No, you have to go to school." Well, I wonder if that was the case for the Brazilian. Remember the remember the or the Brazilian that came silver in the uh, ladies skateboarding. Remember, remember she was uh, that was bookended by a pair of Japanese teens, and we're talking teens. But then again, school was already going, right? Yeah, school school kind of barely stops in Japan. <laughs> So, oh, and for reference, just just to wave flag a little bit more that was that day, and then not too long after, might have been a banner day for the Philippines too, because a mm. Filipino made the the women's skate final, and not too long after, a Filipino weight a female Filipino weightlifter won gold, and I think that was like the first gold in. Might have been ever. I I would have to double check it. Some people were saying more than almost a century, but certainly in our in our time, and she's the toast of uh of the Philippines, as you might expect. <laughs> Every fast food outlet in the Philippines has done some sort of poster <laughs> to commemorate her, whether or not they're officially associated with the Olympics. They they found a way. To celebrate it. And we're talking every fast food chain. I somebody put a list of this. And maybe if I find it, I'll put a I'll put up a link. But yeah, and, and keep in mind the hot weather 
was expected to be an issue there. It has been an issue. I, I think a lot of people really underestimate how hot Japanese summers are. Like you don't, if you imagine Japan, like you're usually not thinking about the the heat in that country. Like you know, maybe if you're, if you're an anime fan, you know the like the cicada cliche or trope, um, and you know people with the fans maybe or the the sweat towels. But like it's never. I, I think most people would assume you know places like Mexico or Arizona or anything like that would be you know hot because there's deserts or rainforests. But Japan and you know maybe especially urban Japan is is just incredibly hot. Is it the epitome of that cliche? It's not the heat; it's the humidity. I think so, but I, I think it also is is both, and this just this weird geography flukes in in certain parts of of the, um, especially that kind of central island chain. There, um, it just creates really hot weather. Okay, and, and remember, remember, rather late in the planning process, without really, and once again, dictated by the IOC. The marathon was moved from Tokyo to Hokkaido for those reasons. Yeah, because I was going to say Hokkaido would be your best bet at that point because it probably yeah. has the least uh, resistance for heat and stuff like that. So it would be the best optimal environment. And at this that's time what of happened, year, but at this time of know. year, it's still going to be hot, but it, it'll be better. Yeah, it's just no. less excruciating, I guess. But yeah, we saw that the opening ceremonies that. Uh, it was good for what they did. It was restrained and stuff like that, but they saw little time to prepare because it's crazy that the, they had all those scandals. All those scandals. And to think, <laughs> the worst scandal we had for Vancouver Winter Olympics was we just couldn't make it snow. And the ironic <laughs> thing is we joked about, remember, Mike, is that next Winter Olympics next year, it's in Beijing. And guess what? It's going to snow whether they want to or not. They'll make it snow. <laughs> yeah. There's there's also going to be no protests. Um, you know, everyone everyone wants it. Yeah, I get it. All all the marginalized communities will be dancing. It'll be wonderful. It's oh, crazy 100, because 100 the Olympics support. we remember it's the ones where they're not beholden to their citizens because they can spend whatever they want, which is kind of insane. Yeah, well, uh. oh, check out, <laughs> uh, people should check out pictures of the water cube that was used for the swimming venue back in two thousand eight. It's now the curling venue. They redid it inside. There's already pictures. There's well, been at least a few it pictures, isn't right? a white elephant because we've seen some of those in uh, the rainforest. Okay, your uh, yeah, in, in Brazil, in Brazil and Greece. Okay, on the top lo- topic of white elephants, Tokyo will hemorrhage. How much in the way of white elephants can we expect? Because they reuse a lot of the historic venues from '64. And that's I mean, what I a, was thinking, because a lot a, of what they did was they reused different venues, the big site and all that stuff, where Comic Cat is, they were basically repurposing and probably adding well, that, that's a common practice. And that's a common practice. Big site is, be- is being used as the International Broadcast Center in this case. But compared to other places, like, for example, remember when Toronto was trying to bid for 2008, and even Vancouver, when they finally won a lot of the things that were put forward for bidding for the Olympics is, oh, we're going to make our infrastructure better. We're going to have better subways. We're going to have better, like the Sea to Sky Highway in Vancouver and stuff like that was a big thing going to Whistler, which they improved. But you didn't really need that in Japan. They already have such a great infrastructure and stuff like that. 
So it's kind of mind boggling, like how much money could you really spend? But I think the big elephant was probably security and delaying the Olympics and the replanning of all these things with all the scandals that happened. Hmm. Yeah, and I wonder where the athletes village was too, because it's a lot of the times they're building those from scratch so they can sell them as new housing developments and stuff like that. And you never really would need that for Tokyo. And they might, the sad part is sometimes that they'd be substandard too. I think that was the scandal with uh, the old Olympic village in Vancouver. Mm. Well, what became of it. Th- this year they saved money uh, on uh, those uh, cardboard anti-sex beds. So I think I think there's some it, savings there. That's just to be a little bit more clear about that too. It's, and by the way, uh, just watching live, Canada uh, apparently has just won a bronze in the four by one hundred medley relay for women. So another medal for the girls. Okay, keep in mind there's this ongoing bosai culture about how to deal with emergencies in Japan. This is like an like I've seen it mentioned on NHK and they talk a lot about repurposing things and using common materials to make common, make other common things that you wouldn't have thought of. And so the idea of the cardboard bed wasn't a real surprise. And, and plus, plus, uh, plus also the whole environmentally sustainable type stuff. And by all accounts, the beds, people say they're not, for set for sex and i think but i think they 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 are sturdy enough that they could hold more than one and then some but i I just know there is that there is a burgeoning culture concerning concerning using cardboard for furniture I'm I'm not sure how comfortable the beds are, but I'm I'm sure they actually are of fairly high quality. Like this is you know a culture that can make a house without nails uh, just by interlocking wood in, in specific and, and, and they in sort of depicted ways. that. Yeah, and they sort of depicted that in the opening ceremony, if I remember correctly. But it's just uh, something that uh, is you, you sort of have to. There's a little bit more to it, and I get the whole. Well, sex was being discouraged at the in the in the Olympic Village. So I think that was more of a media thing and stuff like yeah. that because they were going to have those regardless. I think the only thing you would really realistically be concerned about is would they get a good night's sleep because you've heard yeah. about athlete performance and all like the North American leagues and stuff like that, and they've been talking a lot about sleep and stuff like that. Is the athlete getting enough sleep? Are they getting the right food and stuff like that to be at their quote unquote peak performance? And a lot of these athletes, even though some of them are pro, some of them are amateur, a lot of them, like if they know they have a good chance at medal, they're getting that sponsorship money and stuff like that. So are they really amateur for some of them that say they're amateur? Maybe not because they're getting that extra push to try and get that medal. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to add to it. It's just, it's an an interesting, quirky story. Well, it'll be interesting too for the next few summer Olympics, as we know, because there've been more stories about that because we have uh, LA and France and Paris 
Mm-hmm. And then oh. the one after that, they've already awarded the next it's Brisbane. Olympic. It's Brisbane, Brisbane in Australia. And so they right? had oh. a, yeah, Brisbane, the, the Gold Coast, and they got an exclusive quote unquote negotiating window. Yeah, they were, and they ended up being some a people preferred, weren't, yeah, preferred weren't candidate. happy. Like, well, we're thinking they could do it, but I think that's I, how they're going to have to go forward because I'm not sure how many c- cities around the world are willing to actually one, get Olympics because they're thinking twice as they see all these costs sat up and stuff. Exactly. It's not just, it, it isn't just the costs. It's what type of country are we going into? Because once again, where are they heading for, for the Winter Olympics next? And then when you think about who was in competition for said Winter Olympics, it was either China all right, and I think Kazakhstan. And well, China, we can China. China goes without saying, but it's not as if Kazakhstan was was much better by all accounts. So they're they're doing this. So they're starting a system also of preferred candidates, not just for cost, but just for reputation of the country. How, like they're, they, they are looking for safe havens for their for upcoming Olympics. Just countries that have passable reputations when it comes to human rights. And we've seen. I, that I don't know if <laughs> the yeah. problem is the, the problem. How, is how low is the bar? <laughs> The, the problem is every country will have an issue of some sort and they'll and countries will point at each other over it and try to amplify it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you know, the hosts of the next winter Olympics love to do that. Well, I was thinking about the other big event, as I mentioned, soccer in the world cup, because they have the oh, yeah, World Cup next year, and guess and, where they chose to put and, that in? Qatar. I know, and, 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 and those, in that's going to be a and, and crazy once one again, to see happen. And once again, it comes back down to what, like, the point I just made, and then the point I made last week that the IOC and FIFA are very similar in that sense. Who have who through their administrative history sounds so benevolent, but then you then you look at uh, the people who have run them and check out their histories. I feel like you could add F one to that too because they're very European based and similar decision making in my mind too. Mm-hmm. But and, and and since since we were on the topic of of former heads of things like the IOC and FIFA. The one name that will always come to mind also, aside from, we mentioned Juan Antonio Samaranch and Jock Rogue and Thomas Bach, there's also Avery Brundage. And I, I'll just bring up his name once. Look him up. Look him up. Because if you want, like, if you thought, I, the picture that I know has, that has been painted of Samaranch is bad. Look up Avery Brundage. I really don't have to say too much else. Just trust me on this one. It's it's really kind of sad because like even Japan, which I would say has um, a fairly good like current human rights record. You know, it, it, let's you know put the past away for a little bit. 
um, they still cut their their Ainu um, performance out of the opening ceremonies. And that's um, one of the indigenous um, uh, gr- groups of Japan. And it was cut for unknown reasons. Um, and, you know, that's it's definitely not the worst thing Japan has done to these people, like even in the last hundred years. But it's it's still a little bit sad that, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love all of these anime references and video game music. Like, you know, there is the argument that they're doing this to make the protest quieter by drowning it out with, you know, Kingdom Hearts and Sonic. But I still think it's it's something that I'll miss in in future Olympics. I think the novelty of of hearing video game and anime songs during sporting events is really cool. Um, but it's it is a little bit sad that you have this this ancient culture that maybe isn't the the dominant um, ethnic identity of Japan that was you know they had planned to include them, which was an an awesome move, and you know it gets you know, the, the chopping block when ACE combat gets, you know, to be elevated. Like it's, it's a bit of a weird (laughs) and, and sad choice. Like I know it's not a completely equivalent um, as far as the music or the, the cultural event placement, but um, I'm, you know, my hopes aren't high, but my hopes are a little bit there for closing ceremonies, but we'll see. Yeah. Hopefully they can. Maybe well, we, do something with that because we know they had Charles with the opening, but that would have been one you would have thought that you should kind of keep because it would have been a good traditional nod and stuff like that. And we know they've definitely had their problems in Hokkaido with acknowledging the Ainu and stuff like that. And remember, they were through northern Japan and part of Russia and stuff like that was where their cultural mm-hmm. territory I, used to I, be. And we know we've had our problems in Canada, but they have a long road to go with them too. There's also in one other component of that. I, and I want to double check this, but I know that a female J-pop artist had an association that was cut at some point with the opening ceremonies as well. But because I was, I remember hearing about that, but it, names just are blurry to me right now. So that's, I have to put that one aside. Okay. I know we've uh, went on this a little <laughs> bit long, well, one last thing, and or two more things, and then we'll start to get to. Then we'll start to transition a little bit. I mentioned that a Filipino girl made the or Filipina made the skateboard finals on the women's side. My my senpai, remember I told his story at the beginning of the pandemic when he got uh, when he got COVID, and how um, that affected him and and how he received uh, notes of encouragement from his daughter slid beneath the door while he was, while he was isolated from them in the basement bedroom. He, since he's recovered, he's often posts pictures and videos of his daughter skateboarding. So when the final of the, of that event was happening Earlier this week, he put up a post on Facebook contemplating whether or not he should wake up his daughter <laughs> because it was late night. Just just a little quirky note worth mentioning. And the other quirkiness is Devin Haru. Who is Devin Haru, you ask? I may have mispronounced Mr. Haru's name. Devin Haru is a sports journalist for the CBC who's on the ground in Tokyo covering the games and writing reports. 
He is holed up in a hotel room, but on top of his regular reports, and he's become he's becoming a little bit more of a celebrity than he ever has, and he's covered multiple Olympics. He has also on his Twitter feed documented his visits to a 7-Eleven that is in the hotel that he's staying at. And has shown off the various types of foods that he has consumed and enjoyed. He he clearly has enjoyed them. And it's caught wind with some people in Japan. And he's become a viral sensation even in Japan. And he's gained a lot more significant number of followers over the last couple weeks because of his adventures visiting visiting said 7-Eleven. It's gotten to the point also that he made a... uh, he made a short video with, I forgot, uh, one it was of the McMorris. Craig McMorris. Yeah, it was Craig McMorris, uh, the, who's typically their, their snowboard uh, lead commentator. They visited a 7-Eleven and, show, and showed off what they got from there. Uh, it's just that by all accounts, uh, Devin Haru has not been to a proper restaurant yet, and he's constantly, he is now mentioning he's looking forward to having a more traditional dinner. <laughs> but you so, can still um, get a pretty good uh, food at a convenience store in Japan, uh, as we know, and stuff like that, because mm-hmm. we think of convenience stores here, right? And it's a completely different ballgame. So you definitely have a lot more choice and a lot more eclectic choice when and you it was go a, one it there, was, even if it's in the hotel lobby, right? <laughs> yeah, he's made a lot of fans uh, through his uh, little tweets. We'll put up his... Uh, We'll put up the little article that mentioned it on Sora News, and he actually noted that he <laughs> went viral on Sora News. I love that, and, that some of the fans are even saying, like, this makes me proud to be Japanese and mm-hmm. <laughs> things like that. I, I, I should mention also, and um, by the way, I, I, met, I also mentioned it on the, on the Sora News Facebook page and on their, on their Twitter feed. Devin Haru is also, on top of all of this, CBC's lead curling writer. So during the 2018 Olympics, he was on the ground in Pyeongchang and wrote extensively during the curling competition there. And afterwards, he also wrote an article about coaches going overseas to coach other national teams. And... One of the people he interviewed for that piece was a man named J.D. Lind. J.D. Lind is the coach of the Japanese national team, and he was the coach of the women's national team headed by Satsuki Fujisawa when they won bronze in 2018 and, 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 won that, and lost that very dramatic semifinal to Korea, which to this day is the most watched curling match in television history. And was a watershed moment probably for the game in Asia. So, and and by the way, that that ended up being a nice icebreaker because uh, I met J.D. Lin and that team in person when they were in, when they did a curling uh, event here in Toronto. I think I've mentioned that before. And I mentioned that on the Facebook and on Twitter, and Devin Haru gave it a like. So we're trying to get get in touch with him. We know he's busy, though. So he he's somebody I and I fully admit and if anybody who knows him hears this we're looking to talk to him at some point in the future. Devin Haru uh, so lead, one of the lead writers with the CBC. 
Actually, it was interesting too. Did you, since you were speaking 7 Eleven, wasn't there another 7 Eleven story because of another uh, Canadian uh, Olympic commentator on CBC trying to figure out how to open an onigiri or something? Oh, yeah, oh. that's just another story too. <laughs> Supposedly, they were very nice and put out a tweet teaching us how to do that. So oh, they went the cool. extra mile. Yeah, no, yeah, that, those videos are service. No, that's, that's, uh, that's, oh, 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 what's the word? Oto, Otomonashi? Service? Hospitality? I know I mispronounced that. Don't at me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it's like the CBC has gotten all those eyeballs on them, aren't they? But well, at least sometimes, sometimes it's uh, for the better reasons. I know we were joking about uh, Adrian Arsenault and her fascination with, uh, oh, was it Tonga or... One of them is stuff like that. Oh, Whenever well, yeah. Well, up. a lot of people have a have a fascination with the Tongan fl- uh, flight bearer. Flight bearer, yes. Whoever yeah. is chosen. But what's his name? Uh, Pito. Uh, I forgot his name now. But everyone will remember what he looks like. Well, he's definitely uh, greased up, right? Or uh, yeah. Oh, oh do I want to just quickly? Do you want me to want me to make one more mention of that uh, kimono project that was done a few years ago? Yeah. Um, Sora also put up uh, some pictures of some of their favorite kimonos from that, from the One World Kimono Project. Mm-hmm. So how but did it, that end up with all these delays and all these things? I was wondering. They, they finished one. up. They finished up the project last year, but they, they didn't have any formal association with the Olympics. If I remember correctly, though, it, the kimonos have been collected. They will be exhibited in some form. Okay, I was wondering the if they had an, an exhibition space that they could show them. Obviously, they can't do that now with all the states of emergency and that, so it'd have to be done at a later time. Yeah, and I think but those stories were incredible that you shared, and I'm sure if you shared the link again, it was very interesting to see how they were crafted and stuff like that and thought mm-hmm. of. Okay, yeah, and it uh, were yeah, those I, things I, that wouldn't you would like to see in the opening ceremony as well, not just the cool Japan, but some of the traditional culture and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the and the hope was these would be these kimonos would have been used during the parade of nations. Obviously they weren't. We just saw um, well, jackets that uh, resembled the uh, that would have been used in manga. Okay. Well, let's start to transition. Um Emmanuel Macron. I know you want to talk about this one, James. What do you yeah. want to say about this? I mean, it was interesting because, yes, uh, there were some people that I guess were allowed to go to Japan to watch, uh, I guess, the Olympic Olympics opening ceremony. And uh, Macron, uh, I guess, was one of them. And so he went there and he supposedly went to, I guess, some different uh, events. And one of them was a summit meeting with Prime Minister uh, Yoshihide Suga. And he also went to, I guess, a thing where he was meeting these different Japanese creators of the present tense, such as uh, the creator of fairy tale, uh, Hiro Nashima. He also got to met, meet uh, Hidetaki Miyazaki, who did Dark Souls, Bloodborne, and of course, uh, Otomo, Katsuhiro Otomo from uh, Akira, of course. And he also met uh, Naomi uh, Kawase from... Uh, who did the 2017 movie uh, Ikerai, I believe. And uh, supposedly that was released in English as Radiance, it said. But the other last thing that made a lot of headlines was he was given, 
I guess, a piece of art by uh, the creator of One Piece, Oda. And he basically said this was for him and the French people. And so supposedly he was blown away by all these creators. And I think the funny part was when he spoke to uh, Otomo and basically uh, said that congratulating him on his foresight in predicting that Tokyo would host the 2020 Olympics <laughs> all the way back in a curious storyline in the 1980s as he was showing him this different artwork from the original. So, Quirky little story. But as we know, France, like outside of Japan, they are the biggest cultural bastion of export for like manga and anime and they were way before that before us in north american stuff like that they were they get a lot of manga still that just would never come to english-speaking audiences because they have i guess they have more diverse readership and a bigger readership and they have that descent anime culture you know what I mean? And that's why uh, Japan Expo over there is like one of the longest and biggest type of events outside of Japan, even bigger than Anime Expo, as we know. France knew manga and anime before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, is, that a say, is that a true statement? I would say they were definitely ahead of us. I'd say right. it's it's always been cool, but I, I you know, to James' point, oh, well, more like <laughs> what was the word? Yeah, I, I feel to James' point. I think that uh, French comics have always, um, or they've they've had a more uh, a bigger history with diversity compared to um, like the United States, where you know the U.S. basically had you know, gag strips and superheroes. And then eventually like it branched off into, you know, romance and horror and pulp and well, pulp was before, but um, you know, the, the, you know, the American comics haven't been completely void of diversity, but I think that with, with French comics, there's um, it, it's always had the impression to me that there's been like, okay, here's stuff for teenage girls as well. Here's, you know, the, the children's, the, like the really young children's comics, um, you know, and, you know, the more, the more, not aggressive, but more adult stuff. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the audience is probably primed for, for the variety of, of manga, as, as James was saying. Hmm. Yeah, like, I think about it, too, in that respect, that they didn't look at quite like our forebears in North America where it's like this is for kids it's like you're going to grow out of it and stuff like that that they looked at animation and comics as a medium itself and that they were more accepting and that there's a lot of stuff even from Shonen Jump 80s that they it's a part of their culture that just doesn't have that reach anywhere else I think of City Hunter in particular because remember they had their own City Hunter live action movie that they did with French actors in France. And I don't think hmm. you would ever see anything like that anywhere else. And that was a recent movie, I believe, in the last decade. But it just hit a touchstone with them, with City Hunter and many other uh, Japanese manga and stuff like that. And there are other creators that they've given awards to and stuff like that. Uh, because I know some of the gods, they're doing a CG anime and movie in France. And that's based off uh, a manga from Japan, uh, Jiro... Uh, Oh, I forget the creator, but he had passed on. But he was a fantastic mangaka. Hmm. I don't know what else I add to that. It's just, 
Is this a good optic? Is this a good optic for Macron, though? I mean, I guess that's what comes to mind when I see it. Or maybe, who cares? I it, think it, it was just, it's a, just a story. Olympic it visit, me, right? And so it's just a it's just a quirky thing, but it, no, it, but it shouldn't look it shouldn't reflect badly on him. It really makes me curious if he is a fan himself, though, because I, I'm I'm wondering because he's made you know from the the articles um, that James has linked to us, it it's it doesn't seem like he's you know made a statement of oh I love One Piece or you know oh this you know I read Akira Kinda when like, I was a teenager it, I, and I'm not sure if holding back is just I'm a president of a country I can't seem like I'm a geek or if it's um, I want to pretend or have the the impression that I respect these products but I don't partake in them myself um, I'm I'm really curious what the the story might be there. Hmm. I'm well, not sure how much, but I definitely think there is a possibility because remember, he's probably one of the youngest world leaders, as they have mentioned. Others have mentioned. Forty three years, years old. Yeah, yeah, younger than Trudeau, even so. Wow. Okay. I believe so. Well, keep in mind uh, when you when we talk about world leaders and whether or not they're fans of anime and manga, two people come to mind, but they're albeit they're Japanese. Taro Aso, remember him? Because I think he was one of the key guys to who started the Cool Japan initiative back then, when he was prime minister. He was known to be a big, big anime manga fan. At least he didn't cosplay, as far as I know. And remember that bit in when we talked with Fred Schott, James, when he talked about meeting the emperor, the now emperor. Mm-hmm. When he mentioned he did Astro Boy, and you know just. Naruhito uh, whispered to him, oh, yeah, I, I liked that manga. I should read it again. And we had the one um, photograph that he showed uh, at his panel. And I ble- actually know it might have been Helen McCarthy's panel, but I know he's probably used it, too. Well, and I think it was the exact same photo we had talked about with Matt Alt. And it, and it was in, book, it was in and the And it book. was that it definitely you could see like it was infused in all of them. Tezuka's like. Astro Boy, Kimba the White Lion, and all those others. That generation was just infatuated. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I guess not necessarily a world leader, but just to mention this, just to put this out there, because. And then we're coming back to the athlete for a second. A, one of the beach volleyball players in, from Canada has mentioned herself as a fan of Haikyuu and has gained a bit of a following because of it. There was okay, but- there was another um, athlete, um, I think a sharpshooter that had a Witcher pendant um, uh, on them as they were shooting, and they've kind of um, been again mildly Twitter famous uh, for being a geek that is an athlete. Which, uh, like at the end of the Olympics or sometime later on, I we should once again come back to and just find all the references <laughs> made either during the games or if they were made with uh, any athletes too. Okay, it's just staying with France for a couple minutes. Actually, I was going to say, oh, so you quickly, add one since more? we had the Olympics, like it's interesting that you can have all those small little things and show your fandom, and that's definitely something that's happened over the last 20 years, like all those different companies like, um, oh, like Yeti and um, Fangamer and all those others where they do all these cool things that you could show it in a professional saying, and only if you knew it, would you know it was related to maybe a game or an anime mm-hmm. or something like that, <laughs> right? 
like whether it's a small pendant or a small thing on your shirt and stuff like that, or even that or one even... company doing the Pokemon uh, style dress shirts in Japan that can be custom ordered and stuff like that, that look pretty neat. And some of them are pretty slick that you could probably fool someone and there's like nice shirt, but have no idea it's hidden <laughs> meaning. Man. Or or, wearing, or a napping dress, like uh, we mentioned last week. I'm not sure you could wear that uh, while you're competing in the Olympics, but hey, maybe you can. Which is just fashion in general, yeah. You're right. Okay. Do we want to continue in France for a couple seconds? This one, this is a kind of a funny story. Well, this was yeah, funny one too, oh, wasn't you, it? Oh, I'm not sure who, ex- how exactly this got put forward. We, I, like maybe, actually, it was. They said this was one of Emmanuel Macron's uh, came pro- campaign promises to have this cultural pass. And supposedly it was uh, France uh, had said uh, young people have to stop rejecting literature and film. So for these 18-year-olds, they had this cultural pass where they gave them 300 euros, which they're saying approximately 350 US dollars to spend on the arts for these 18-year-olds. And what do you think they would spend it on is the real question. And we found out. And it's? 75% 75% of all purchases through this app uh, are for books, and roughly two-thirds of the books were manga. And so some people in the French media are instead saying that instead of cultural pass, it should be manga pass. And so, as we can see, the uh, association is still strong between uh, the French and manga and anime and stuff like that. And I'm not sure exactly that is what uh, Macron envisioned, and I'm sure some of those other politicians <laughs> envisioned when they said they were going to stop them from rejecting literature and film. They just didn't tell them which ones they wanted, right? I'm guessing. Imagine this happening in Canada. I'm just saying. I imagine the result might be, you know, maybe not to the extreme, but I, I think it would be similar. Yeah, well, this is the uh, considering the type of country Canada is when it comes to its own culture. I, I don't which, think the eighteen-year-olds are going to be raring to go to get Corner Gas animated on <laughs> on DVD <laughs> or whatever it is. It's interesting uh, though that it was only eighteen-year-olds. It sounds like, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> I don't know how they chose that age group. It's just kind of funny too. Well, it it has me thinking about. The, the merits of graphic novels. I think rather almost like I got in touch with one of my old friends from high school. She's a high, she's a teacher now. And when she found out I, about my anime and manga hobby, we talked a little bit about it. First of all, she didn't have no issue with it, which, which is cool because you know, it's a weird, it's some, to some people, it, it's a turn-off hobby, let's be honest. But she respected it because she just mentioned to me her students are into anime and manga. So, and she wanted to relate to them and understand her students a little more. And we got on the topic of manga and graphic novels. And, and we came to the agreement with the idea, well, it, pick, it gets somebody to pick up a book of some sort right? Just get them reading something. So we, we, there's this long, always this long debate about the 
merits of of graphic novels. I mean, I mean, Bill Maher doesn't like doesn't care about the idea that comic books can be considered literature. Well, they said that about video games. They said it about Harry Potter. They said it about Pokemon, all this stuff. But if that maybe starts the journey for one young person to maybe like pick up something else or maybe go into a museum and see a different piece of art or whatever, that's a good thing and stuff like that. Instead of rejecting uh, reading or anything like that, it'll start them towards that. And even if they stick maybe with graphic novels and manga, it's grown so much and become so much more diverse that there is definitely some bigger topics and more touchier subjects that some of them cover that challenges some people. And I think that is a good thing. It's not just throwaway pop culture for everything. And that, that was mentioned in that article that you, you linked as well. Like there was a quote from uh, someone who was like replying to criticism saying like, don't be upset that they're reading manga be happy that they're reading anything. Um, and, you know, definitely from, from my, my work in education, like I've, I've had students who are surprised that I, I know what Attack on Titan or Naruto is. Um, and I've used um, not Japanese manga, but um, I've used graphic novels um, to aid in teaching uh, ESL before. And of course, as an art teacher and media arts teacher, I've, I've thrown in manga and graphic novels. So like, I'm, I'm definitely probably the most biased person when it comes to uh, <laughs> using comics in, in education. Um, there's a wonderful um, uh, Ted, uh, Ted talk by Gene um, Yang, um, who is the author of American born Chinese. Um, and he's, he's worked with um, at least, I think DC, I think he might've done Marvel work as well. Um, but, you know, a fantastic uh, Ted talk about um, his experience with comics and education. Um, and I've used American born Chinese specifically in the ESL classroom. And it's so amazing for that. Um, I firmly believe like not only, you know, I, I definitely believe graphic novels and comics are a form of literature and, you know, visual art. But I think that, you know, you can integrate them in almost any subject. Um, I don't know about math. I'm sure someone has made a math comic somewhere and hopefully it's okay. But um, definitely almost any other subject, I think that there's huge value in it, whether it's history or any of the social stu um, studies um, courses and, of course, English. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's great that libraries have have largely had huge manga and graphic novel sections um because like as as everyone has said like as long as people are reading it will make reading easier it will make them interested and as as james kind of mentioned if if they're only reading comics oh well like it's it's better than nothing and there's so much variety in comics these days that like all it takes is one trip to TCAF and I'm sure that the horizons will be expanded. hundred percent. Well, keep in mind, TCAF takes place in the library. <laughs> and the thing is, as we said, like from an art teacher perspective, all that, it isn't just one style. There's so many different styles from so many different artists that you can engage the students with, as we said for history and may these other things there are these different people getting into graphic novels 
talking about maybe different historical figures and different topics that allow you to engage people at different levels and stuff like that. And maybe it'll spark something and they'll help them understand maybe some of the topics we cover and stuff like that. So it isn't always a one size fits all and stuff like that. We have to try and always think of new ways to engage students and anyone else in life. Like you can't just throw a textbook full of words and hope somehow it's just going to get in the head, right? And that Uh, might work for some kids, but it won't work for others. Oh, well, all words, and I learned this also while reading my books today at work. <laughs> <laughs> they can put you to sleep. Okay, I guess that's a good segue and a nice little transition as we really start to get into the bullets for this episode. These are presented in point form, but could become essays. As we uh, get away from all the Olympic talk or anything that could have been remotely related to the Olympics. What the hell is with the head of Katakawa? Is that a good, is that a good way to start to start talking about that? <laughs> or maybe what the heck happened to their PR team to have him <laughs> on that program in the first place to well, have his foot in the were, mouth? They were busy watching the Olympics. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, they were in negotiations to figure out how to be in the Olympics or to take all their sponsorship off, like Toyota. Who knows? (laughs) Toyota and maybe Nintendo, too. For all we know, Nintendo could have pulled out as well. That's why we didn't hear any of their music during the opening ceremonies after being so prominent in the closing ceremonies in Rio. They've always been close to the vest, so (laughs) who knows? (laughs) Okay, Takeshi Natsuno. And, and, it sounds like he's put his foot in his mouth a few times over the last little bit. Yeah, so he was on this uh, Abima TV broadcast on July 21st, and it was entitled this program, well, this segment, Controversial Extremes, Is Swimsuit Graveur Necessary in Shonen Magazines? And they were talking about that, and... Natsuno uh, had an interesting quote in saying that there are more extreme manga in Japan than Graveur. This and other factors prevent Japanese manga from being reviewed by Google and Apple. So including that, I feel that we need to redefine the standards to what extent the public is allowed to use the internet, but not from where. The publishing industry I'm in is full of libertarians, but I get the feeling that we need to pull back a bit and then... A lot of uh, creators obviously came out uh, a bit angry at that and stuff like that, saying he's basically saying that we should be uh, censoring and stuff like that and all this other. Well, they interpreted it as yeah. Would you say? Would would we say? Would he say he was being explicit in that suggestion? I think that his word choice was probably poor, and that it was more. I feel like in his mind, he was probably speaking from his own uh, mouth instead of as the president of Katakawa, which he probably should have been realizing he was speaking as. So his words carried more power. And people I think that, yeah, and that's part of the criticism, I think, right? And I think Kanakamatsu kind of cited that because they're a traded company. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that affected them too, and we'll get into that. But the other thing was, as we said that title, right, of that uh, broadcast, the segment they were talking about, they were talking about Shonen magazines. And then the question is, 
well, what type of shonen magazines were you talking about? Maybe more of the older teens and stuff like that. Were you talking about the younger boys segment and stuff like that? Like the Shonen Jump and stuff like that? Where they don't have as much of, I guess, the grever or more of the racy content, even though sometimes they might be able to sneak it in and then you wouldn't have to worry about people like Google and Apple and this idea that maybe they are going to be setting the world standards as we move from the physical pages to the digital pages, for example, since there's less manga magazines and they're starting to move to digital as we talk. So it's going to be interesting to see this transition and there's a lot of things still to be settled. And especially when you have someone like Takeshi uh, Natsuno making those comments that's worrying as the head of Katakawa since they're one of the biggest in Japan for publishing material, either animated in manga or in the written word. There's a bunch of angles I, I, that come to mind as I read this story. Yeah, it's the money part. Money part's part of it. Apple, I know, is a very PG company. Take a good look at their offerings on Apple TV+. Plus. But remember this whole talk we had, we, this ongoing discussion we have about how anime and manga will evolve as it goes further overseas. And... Like, I'm not trying to defend Takashi Natsuno by any stretch. But you know that he, that he has to think the, in those terms. How is that going to change? And will the content prevent him from getting into other markets? That's a real question. I guess the other question is, are we talking about the manga themselves or are we even talking about the platforms? Because remember, Katakawa's platform is Bookwalker and that's across the globe now and stuff like that, even in English. And I'm wondering if maybe there's thoughts in that. Would one title torpedo their whole app and stuff like that? And I know they've been getting more of the risque stuff too from other publishers uh, that they support, like Kodansha has sent some exclusives their way and stuff like that. That would oh, be, really? I think, a bit more than Gravure and stuff like that. Like, uh, what the hell are you doing here, teacher, and a few other ones. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So is he concerned that, like, Apple and Google won't put the Bookwalker app on their store? Or is he talking about specific titles? That's what I'm wondering, but I feel like it might be more specific titles because I know there's definitely age gate, uh, like age gating and stuff like that for certain yeah. apps and things like that. So I would think you wouldn't have a worry on that. So I'm wondering if it's like on just manga in general and certain titles, but I think you wouldn't have to worry in the absence, right? Like that's what is so weird, but who knows? Like, is he thinking international, but he may be thinking more on the domestic front too, because it was a domestic program. It was a domestic program, and the part of the criticism was whatever you end up doing outside of the outside of Japan will come back in, right? I think that was part of the criticism. If they if you start uh, rolling back a little bit, 
Mm-hmm. And then other, others, I think some of the other criticisms are, remember how you got here. You got here being this libertarian. You got here not having a version of the com- of the of the comics comic book act that was in the U.S. which comics was so code. highly the comics code. Thank you, which was so highly stated and cited in something like uh, Pure Invention. And it's like and the rem- breath of fresh air that contrasts everything else we see in other markets. Mm-hmm. And and I end up reflecting on that line we had when we talked with Matt Alt again. The refined and the vulgar exist side by side in, in a lot of Japanese pop art, visual art. There was, there was one quote, I think, from one of the critics that really, like, I'm not really sure what to make of it, that said, you know, something like, the lack of censorship is the reason why manga is so popular overseas. And I think that's, it's a powerful quote, but like, I'm thinking of the most popular manga and I, I don't know if any of them really suffer from lack of censorship or from if, if they would have suffered from censorship if it existed. I think okay, it's well, weird because if you looked at it so many years ago, right, we could look and say, yeah, but now we've developed so much that it isn't even a problem from some of those stuff in early, like early Shonen Jump to now in the U.S. Like we think about the censorship that used to take place in Pokemon manga and Dragon Ball and stuff like that. And now it's not a problem. So yeah, like sometimes like it takes so long to develop, yeah. right? So I think we're in a better place now. So is, is this just a mistake for Natsuno for just thinking out loud? I would say so, but you definitely see contrast to like for example they had the ceo of uh Dewango, which is the owner of nico nico and that was uh shigetaka kirita and he just went on and basically i guess trying to score the points right and saying that they had no plans on instituting any changes to their existing policies on their video platform or on nico nico manga and so they were trying to say, hey, we're here to stay and we're going to stick with what's made us popular uh, in Japan and in other places as we grow and show the Japanese uniqueness, I guess, which is interesting. But no, we, I mean, that, 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 once again, it comes back down to, to me, what got you here? But then you what? have the flip side, I think we saw, and someone made mention of Sony and PlayStation about the U.S. has become more powerful than Japan and maybe setting standards because we've seen in a lot of PlayStation releases for some of the niche or games and the JRPGs and some of them, they've been more apt to censor certain things and clove certain characters, like, I guess, if they felt they were a little too risque, which never used to be as much the case compared to Nintendo, but now they're more censorship-heavy than Nintendo, and it's not like it's a big thing, but it's a small thing at the moment, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I, I think it's. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, yeah, Jay. I, uh, go ahead, Jeff. I don't know where to find this information, but I would be very um, curious to read the actual, like, what the censorship laws in Japan actually are, because, like, I think by comparison to the the states, I think that there's it might look like the Wild West, but I'm sure there's something. 
um, at least when it comes to, you know, non-hentai related materials. Like there, there must be some rules in place. And I'm really curious where those lines are or like what these rules are. And I okay, feel and, like I, there's like a gentleman's agreement too. Like we see um, Comic Head and we see how it's grown over the many decades and how like there's almost a gentleman's agreement between these fan creators and the creators for Dojinchi. But the, yeah. I, yeah, and I think that's interesting because like that goes into like the copyright law of it all as well. So like there's so many of these overlapping things where, you know, like I don't know what the restrictions on nudity are uh, technically is when it comes to, you know, an actual company published work. And if, you know, if there's any restrictions on the doujin market, like I don't imagine there are, but I'm sure if one of the doujins was, you know, had instructions on how to do illicit things or something, it would be pulled or the police might get involved. But like beyond that, I'm, I'm really curious what, what laws are in place in Japan. And it is interesting as, as James was mentioning that, you know, it's, it seems like the U S market is kind of maybe subtly um, or, you know, pulling the strings indirectly. Mm -hmm. Which is, well, it doesn't sound good, does it? Uh, just on first blush. I don't know. Like, it it depends because, like, if if the censorship is where we have this sixteen year old character with only clothing covering the nipples or something, then yeah, I'm okay with censorship in that case. Um, you know, and I'm I'm fine if I guess I'm fine if people want to argue that. I don't know. Um yeah, so they'll I haven't ask you. thought you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um I don't know. Like I think that's uh The real question is can <laughs> we see Mario's nipples? Yes. Sometimes. We see we see we see sometimes you can see this, sometimes you can't. It's like You can see you can see Eggman and Wario's nipples in the Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. Okay. Uh, but we, t- we talk about that. that goes into it's just, the, it's the just male another, versus female yeah, I know, I know. stuff. So <laughs> it's it just like the this whole story kind of is another layer. Take a shot. Take another layer in <laughs> that ongoing discussion we have about what will happen overseas to the anime manga market when it's when it really because it matters now or it's becoming it matters more than it ever has to japan and as they become the more and, digital and, and medium and as that becomes and the, tip, the way and the balance, to uh, distribute it yeah. to their home market and other markets how is mm-hmm. that going to affect what's on the page and stuff like that and other as we globalize more, right, and we have these different things talking about copyright and stuff like that, how is that going to affect dojins? How is that going to affect all sorts of things? Mm-hmm. So this is, like I said, this is a, uh, maybe he was just better off keeping his mouth shut. Well, the PR well, he's, people should have held him cut. back. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he's taken a pay cut, so he's paying his debt to society, I guess. Well, that was the interesting thing where they said he's returning 20% of his monthly executive compensation from August to October 2021. And 
Katakawa actually had a news release announcing that and saying that they stressed that his comments were his alone and didn't represent their policies. So, mm-hmm. and it's interesting that he did like we think about all these scandals over here with different companies and stuff like that with CEOs, and you would never ever see that. And even when they do bad, they don't get those type of pay cuts. Like remember, well, when they don't Sakura get. Wada they might get let like, go, oh, but then they cut. get that. They they might get let go, but then they get a hell of a golden parachute too. Yeah, I mean, think about it. And I, I told this example just before we hit the record button. When Target and its attempt in Canada failed some years ago, one of the fallouts from it was the CEO in the U.S. of Target would eventually be pushed out. He got a golden parachute. And his compensation when he left was more than the severance for the entire Canadian employees or all the employees of the Canadian operations of Target combined. If I have to lose, if I permanently lose any jobs, I'd like to get something good out of it. I was thinking, James. I was thinking the uh, current times and stuff like that, and everyone's favorite uh, whipping boy, uh, Bobby Kotick uh, from Activision Blizzard, and the craziness that is just like we say it's blown up, but they've had so many blobs, and it's not. It was pretty much an open secret, say the least. But to think he's still allowed to run that company. And to get those performance bonuses through stock and all that stuff, it's just ridiculous how much money he makes and how they haven't been able to pull it back even further with those different shareholders that have been trying to pull back his salary. Because how can you let go of that many employees and then still get all that money for yourself and mm-hmm. some of those other executives? It just boggles the mind how... We look at Japan and we look at this incident and how they dealt with it and how there was an actual financial uh, penalty there. And that is probably a penalty for him because he's probably not as making much as some of those other CEOs in the States. And so it's just kind of crazy how that all works out and that it just makes you wonder when we're finally going to hit that ceiling here in North America where we say enough is enough. Like, do you really need that amount of money? I don't think it would, well, not quickly, not without a fight. But it is the free market, right? They always say, well, they're going to go somewhere else because we're not giving them what they want. But I think that's a bunch of malarkey. But one day we'll see how it all rolls out, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I I remember hearing a story about a, I don't know if he still is, but the head of uh, Japan Airlines. Barely getting the, barely getting, I don't think, uh, he gained a salary, an official salary that I don't think even got into six figures, North American-wise equivalent. But he, he certainly didn't get a, a, the highest compensation himself. Okay. Well, that wasn't much of an... That wasn't a, that wasn't a bullet. That was an essay. <laughs> 
Well, this is interesting to see how it goes in the future, doesn't it? Because I'm sure we'll hear more stories uh, as Japan transitions to digital. And we've and, had that talk about as the physical anime and stuff like that, how we've and, had and of transition course. to streaming, and we're still dealing with that as streaming matures just now, right? And we talked about mm-hmm. that with anime tube and everything else. And anime and manga on digital, of course, and then, of course, coming outside of Japan. I mean, this is, as I said, this is another angle on a story that we constantly talk about. So, you know, we'll uh, revisit it again and probably we'll revisit when Natsuno is forced to step down. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk meme stocks for a couple minutes. I thought we were talking about Canadian content. That too. So EB Games as a brand becomes no more towards the end of the year. Was EB Game was EB uh, a Canadian company to originally? No, I, I it was history a little. Bit. It was not what? because remember, Electronic Boutique, as it was originally called, was from the states, and they then expanded into uh, Canada, and then and, it was ultimately, and then ultimately they were bought out by uh, GameStop and stuff like that. And they got some of their internet because Electronic Boutique went more international than GameStop because remember they had Australia, New Zealand, they had Canada, and they had some European operations. I believe. I'm not sure. I think they were in the UK along with uh, Game UK, mm-hmm. which is over there. And I think, they t- I think Game is now a part of GameStop too. Like it's interesting that for this one, they are going to change it to GameStop. And does that mean some of those other international locations may follow suit? And people were wondering that in Australia, for example, because Australia and Canada, this was the better brand, uh, EB Games. More people knew that. And I'm not sure if they tried it in Australia, New Zealand, other places, but we know they tried to do some stores under the GameStop brand in Canada. Well, we should, let's clarify also for the listeners who aren't aware of this story. It was announced this week that EB, the EB Games brand in Canada will be phased out by the end of 2021 in favor of the parent company's brand, GameStop. Right? That's a, that's a short version of it. And obviously, we want to understand it, especially since EB Games and GameStop, you know, that's part of that whole, it's one of those retailers. And... And it's it's one of the premier places to get anime figures and merchandise in uh, stores. Pops, but anyway, no, Mm -hmm. even like Figma and like um, Ben Presto, like all like there's there's a um, like Gachapon like blind boxes. Um, I was I was just in there one of those places a few days ago, and I I was, you know, it's become less and less of a video game store over the last five or ten years. But it, it's EBS amazing. It's a part of that too, isn't it? Where they have more of the merch. Yeah, but it, it's amazing how how much of the types of products that you can find at at EB Games now you used to only really be able to find at an anime convention or maybe a, a specialty store. Um, you know, certain comic book stores. It's it's interesting how they've pivoted. And I wonder too, thinking on it too, since. They're going to rebrand as GameStop. They've already rebranded the uh, Twitter account, social media accounts, it sounds like. Definitely Twitter into GameStop. But remember, they bought uh, ThinkGeek down south and then operated some physical 
think geek stores because remember that was just an online retailer before they bought them if they would think about having that brand introduced into Canada as well more prevalently. Mm-hmm. It's a reflective moment, I guess. It'll be I mean, interesting to see. Like, I think this time they put their foot down and stuff like that. And well, last time they did open some, but then it just didn't take because I remember some stores that opened as GameStop. Then they finally had to go back to EB Games and some that, remember, as you said, had changed to GameStop. But then they had to go back to EB because the customers, there, the saga, was, yeah. there was more prevalence for the EB uh, Games name. But the mm-hmm. weird thing is, in their press release, they talked about how the response to this change and why they're taking all these signs down, quote-unquote, and changing everything was in response to feedback from our valued customers and stockholders. And I really wonder about that. It <laughs> seems kind of crazy. Even the FAQs, as I told you, was kind of bonkers. Like, the question, what will GameStop be called in Quebec? Do we know? What do you think it'll be called? GameStop for now, I guess, until... You, until That's like, what they said. Well, is GameStop in Quebec as well. And so I'm until, like... Until they are asked those, to, those language police are going to be on their buns so far. I'm not sure if they're going to put a little something French like before, right? Just to stop them. But I, it's just so bizarre. And then I love the one question. Like It feels like this was done by their headquarters in the States. Because well, one of the questions was... Will GameStop and EB Games Canada have the same prices? And they say, no, <laughs> prices will remain in Canadian dollars. More no fucking shit. No fucking shit. Come on. It's like yeah. they're going to just charge us in American dollars. Like we're a mm-hmm. colony. Come on. It's, well, it, 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 as I said, it's a reflective moment. I, I think it's I look at an it. end of an era. Like I, I still remember, you know, electronic boutiques. Um, you know, at the, at the Scarborough town center, it was in the exact same space until I think just a couple of years ago. Um, and even that shift, you know, was, was kind of a, a big one for me because, you know, I remember, you know, as a young child, you know, going in there and, you know, connecting to, you know, the first console launches that I experienced for Dreamcast and then GameCube were, were centered around that. Um, I, I- I guess I remember the neon. I have. I, I still have my punchline from from that experience. <laughs> you remember because... the neon sign though, too. Uh, oh Jeff? yeah. Because I remember yeah, like Charles yeah, yeah. Boutique, and they had that neon sign. It just felt so distinctive to me before it... they took it down and went with EB Games and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, it's. I mean, you know, I, I was never a huge fan of, of EB Games by comparison, just for nostalgia reasons. But at least there was still that little bit of a connection there. So. You know, I, I think this is a little bit sad that, you know, we're losing our very small little bit of very American Canadian identity. Uh, but, you know, we'll we'll get used to it. The good news, though, is, Jeff, I'll tell you, because I looked at the FAQ now. It said, can I have one of the old store signs? And they said they're evaluating their options and including the idea of auctioning them off to charity. Oh, that's well, that's cool. kind of like... That's like so, that's sort of like or, uh, the little town of Orono outside of Toronto trying to get the old version of the Toronto sign. 
<laughs> you, you heard that story? You know yeah, about think, that story? I think I remember that one. That was yeah, because funny. because they because the city has to actually replace the sign. That uh, that sign was meant to be temporary in 2015. It's I don't know if it's they've switched it yet, but at the time, Orono uh, tried to get the remnants of it, get the original sign, and then you know make it a tourist attraction there. So I think there's one person here who hasn't spoken that. Uh, actually worked at EB at one time and I think his opinion matters more than ours and I think well, Kevin yeah, well, Kevin, Kevin's, doing a, Kevin's doing his great Mohammed impression here does Kevin have a thought? a better question is he around <laughs> did, he, did he hear EB games and Maybe it triggered hmm. the, the trauma and stuff memories. like that of many people that have worked at EB Games and their uh, systems, right? Well, there's there's and certainly GameStop. been some some noteworthy uh, releases that I'm sure were were not pleasant. Hmm. Okay. Well, I'll give a a, a quick thought. When you mentioned the the launch of Dreamcast, the launch of Dreamcast, if I remember correctly. Happened the same day as the release of Final Fantasy VIII, I believe it was. That's right, nine nine ninety nine. Yeah, I remember that because I remember just walking into EB that day and just getting a copy of Final Fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody else was clamoring to get a Dreamcast. It was also the release date of the uh, American release of the Sonic the Hedgehog OVA, which I purchased on VHS at the, on the same oh, day. Oh boy. All right. I'm just thinking that the most recent one that I guess we're never, ever going to forget is the Animal Crossing and Doom launch that happened at the flagship store in Toronto. <laughs> and I'm getting raked over the coals, probably rightfully so, about that <laughs> as COVID started. Okay. <sighs> well, and, and then the other reflection, reflective note is it's not quite the same, but it sort of reminds me when they phased out the future brand name, a uh, future shop name. Mm. When Best Buy finally had discontinued the future shop brand. Uh, although they had, by that point, they had already long taken over the operations. They had been pretty much a decade in. But yeah, maybe there's a degree of streamlining there and a degree of brand recognition they want to try and capitalize on now. But yeah, it's a little bit uh, reflective. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. How it is going forward. Sometimes they do have their exclusives and stuff like that. And sometimes getting certain games, it's hard to get them in Canada. Because remember, you would go into that video game store and be able to get it. And that isn't always the case for everyone uh, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future in that. Because not all online retailers may want to get those niche games, the JRPGs of from the smaller publishers like uh, some of the game stores used to. I do remember yeah. like, you know, it, it was, you know, sometimes a, a kind of a crapshoot, you know, whether we would get the, the GameStop exclusive um, pre-order bonuses and stuff. Like, I think it's gotten um, maybe a little bit better in recent years, but um, you know, I remember probably right around that, um, the when they were purchased, um, you know, it still really wasn't a guarantee. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is a reflective moment. Kevin, you there? 
Well, we're going to start winding it down because we've been talking about a whole load of different things this week. And then maybe we can refocus. One thing that I know Kevin will want to talk about in the near future is something that happened at Comic-Con. There was a manga panel at Comic-Con that was moderated by Debeoki, I believe it was. He sent us the link to that. We, we were thinking about talking about it, but I think we want to talk about it a little bit more at length when we see the video. So we're going to hold that off. Especially when Kevin's here. Yeah. Yeah. As I said, uh, Kevin's doing his um, best Muhammad imitation. Well, I thought Mo was doing his best Kevin impression at the end of the last... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well done. That was well done. Okay. Basically. <laughs> well, okay. I guess that's it for the uh, items in brief, the bullets. Well, I think Before we're going to we go... look at the calendar. We're... Yeah, let's look at the let's look at the calendar. Let's look at the anime community calendar. Quickly, a couple items. First of all, the Japan Foundation New York ongoing series on academic uh, academic aspects of pop culture. They have the latest edition in their series, doing the video games. Um, James, you saw a bit of it. Uh, just a quick impression. It was uh, quite well done. So it was called uh, How the Japanese Video Game Industry Found, Lost, and Rediscovered Its Way. And it happened uh, on July 28th, but it's on the Japan Foundation New York's uh, YouTube. So you can uh, rewatch it uh, whenever you want. And it had Chris Kohler. It had a professor from Concordia, actually, too. And another one uh, moderating. I forgot the names off the top of my head right now, but it was quite an interesting discussion going from quickly video game beginnings of course in america and then how japan was able to capture our imagination just as matt alt would say with nintendo during the 80s and early 90s and then of course sega and sony capturing our imaginations and then by the early aughts how it kind of transitioned with uh, Microsoft entering the game and then some of these Western companies kind of bringing their own uh, vision to the fore and then how there was that self-doubt how they started to try and say, we need to be that AAA machine. But then over the last decade, them rediscovering themselves and saying, hey, we can be bring our own visions and show our own uniqueness and still find an audience abroad. And even if we don't, we'll still have a good uh, audience at home as well, kind of like they do with anime and manga. Uh, I got to watch it myself. But it was interesting. They had the two having uh, the two uh, talks, and then they went uh, like they do always to the Q&A, and some of them were fluffy, and some of them were some more in-depth, interesting questions as well. That's You can sort of count on that from the, from the Japan Foundation New York series. Worth a watch, we'll put a link. Just the YouTube video, I think. Correct. Of the replay. All right. Do we quickly want to say something about Otakon and Crunchyroll Expo online? Well, they are happening Those happen next, uh, week, right? next week. And Crunchyroll is online. And I believe, I'm guessing it's the same as we did before because it's free to register. And then I guess they'll send you a link so that you can go to the different uh, virtual. Uh, rooms and stuff like that and i'm guessing they're going to have different uh, panels and different video premieres as they said so that'll be interesting to see next weekend 
and mm. I think it starts Thursday uh, as well. Oticon, as you said, like it's going to be one of the first big uh, in-person events. Well, uh, yet in another America for uh, anime uh, and uh, yeah, yet, yet another big one. I mean, we we know there's an, one or uh, a few have already happened. But yeah, one of the biggest uh, ones to come back, and so it'll be interesting to see how that uh, goes. And there still will be a way for us. Uh, that can't go physically to go there because they were thinking of that. And they said through their Twitch channel, they're going to have some virtual programming and it isn't going to be like, you're going to see the full panel or something like that. I think it's just going to be like a team trying to give you that experience of being at the convention and going to different parts of the convention and showing it through Twitch and that. So it'll be interesting to see how they package that on the virtual side. Okay. And just a quick plug, because we, we just before we came on the air, we talked a little bit about shopping this week. Humble Bundle. Humble Bundle's at it again. So they've teamed up with Stonebridge Press, and they're offering basically the bulk, if not all, of Stonebridge Press's Japanese series, Japanese culture and language books. They're willing to part with something like 22... 50 in Canadian, less than a dollar a book. And these are ebooks. Yes, granted, these are ebooks. There's like 26 books in this bundle. Maybe of note to us as fans two Fred Shot books, Dreamland Japan, which was uh, the follow up to, to Manga Manga, and the Astro Boy essays are two more noteworthy titles from our uh, good friend uh, Fred Shot. Uh, Fred Patton's uh, famous book, Watching Anime, Reading Manga, is amongst this bundle. And so is Anime Explosion by uh, Patrick, Patrick Drazen. I don't know. Is there something that caught your attention? I know, I'm, I, I know I'll eventually get this. Uh, and this is set as of taping to end in 11 days. We are taping this on July... July 31st. James, anything caught your attention? I think most of them you said uh, are ones uh, a lot of people would look at, but there's definitely well, a good eclectic uh, mix uh, given Stone Press and definitely some educational things that might make someone say, hmm, maybe I'll take a look and maybe brush up on trying to uh, learn some well, Japanese and you never know where that may take someone, right? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. And maybe if you like your if you like something classic, Milky Way Railroad, Kenji Miyazawa's masterpiece is in there, too. So that's something worth uh, considering. Humble Bundle. Humble Bundles. And they've done uh, Kodansha ebooks, and those are so worth the, the trouble. Oh, well, most of the time. This one certainly will be. Anyway. But I think we've overstayed our welcome for this evening. Oh. Well, uh, just because, you okay? you know, uh, speaking of uh, Kodansha, um, uh, the uh, current publishers of uh, Shaman King, uh, this will might, might be the last uh, podcast taping before the uh, North American and I guess worldwide uh, launch <laughs> of Shaman King 2021 on August 9th. Uh, that's Monday, August 9th, um, not sponsored by Shaman King, aside from its uh, generic influence in the uh, flanderization of my fandom. 
Um, Way to go. <laughs> it's good to know that you're uh, going to say still support it, even if it is in Netflix jail, since I know <laughs> people were talking about another series that they think is going to Netflix jail, which is the second season of Vinland Saga. Because mm-hmm. that was a funny one, because Vinland Saga, so Sentai licensed it to come out physically and stuff like that, and that's great. They announced their voice cast and stuff like that, but people found out there was a second dubbed English voice cast from L.A. that did it for Netflix that they haven't Mm. even streamed yet. So that's making them think they're going to get second season. Then once the clock ticks out on Amazon, they're probably going to pick up that first Mm. season for streaming as well, Mm. which is kind of crazy. Yeah, well, I can keep talking about uh, what's on my queue right now, too. (laughs) Beastars, uh, Kaguya-sama, Love is War, those are still there. Beastars is great. I, I, you loved, saw the rest I saw of the it? second okay. season, yeah. It was, it was All right. really good. So oh, yeah. I know those were those are upcoming in my on my list, and I went on a bit of a brine spree. I told Kevin about that. Hey, Kevin, you okay? <laughs> yeah. What happened? Me? It's been a long. It's been a long week. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything you want to mention? Is there? Can, I'll give you the floor for a moment. Is there something you want to mention in any of the stories? I don't know if you've heard heard anything we said in the last little bit. Oh, uh, quickly. Hmm, honestly, nothing really. Uh, Not even EB? Not EB? Well, with EB, it's just like, I remember when they did try to change the name back to, not back to, but they changed a few of the EBs to GameStops, like, years ago Mm -hmm. here. Yeah, oh, I remember the attempt. Yeah, and they ended up changing them back, which I thought was a little odd, but... Uh, now, GameStop's name is known quite a bit now, and uh, the, rightfully or wrongfully, yep, right? The, but that, nonetheless, yeah, like the whole the whole thing with its stock pretty much saved the company. So I, I wonder if the stock has something to do with it. Oh, like, I think ride it does. the meme to the end, huh? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, that's the thing. I think it. He's probably yeah, and as I said, it's it's a brand. It's brand recognition going the other way now. Anything else come to mind, Kevin? Mm. You want to add anything? Mm. It's okay. We can. Or I mean, I did. We did hint about the the Comic Con uh, manga panel that uh, Deb. It was a Deb. Was it Deb Oki? Yeah, that was Deb Oki who hosted the panel, and then. And we'll t- and I know we will talk. I, I do want to talk about it, but I have I want to watch it too. So, yeah, let, I, I I guess we will talk about it. Uh, hey, now, how about next week? Why not? Right. Hmm. Okay. And I guess we had talked about some of San Diego Comic Con, right, Kevin? How uh, Rosa Versailles Udon's going to bring out uh, a final omnibus hardcover of the Rosa Versailles episodes, which they did way later after the series had completed, which was kind of interesting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, um, interesting of AK to do. Okay. Actually, one thing that came to mind, actually. Uh, so, so uh, this week, uh, I, there was actually a small update of sorts on Udon's uh, acquisition of Sugar Sugar Rune, which they had licensed years ago. 
Hmm. Yes, I they forgot still have about that. that. I forgot yeah. about that. Holy smokes. They, so what's the update? So they still have it. Uh, they're trying to obtain... <laughs> One way to put it. They're trying to obtain some... Uh, they're trying to tame some of the artwork. Uh, I don't have the exact tweet in front of me right now, but uh, they're just waiting to to acquire some of the artwork. Otherwise, like the translation, the lettering, all that is done. Cool. So, like oh, once they once they get to a point where they're satisfied that they've like done all they could in terms of like acquiring the dig the digitized art files, then then they'll just have it all out like in a quick succession. So it's okay. kind Almost of like one, it's kind of like Rose of Versailles, song. yeah. Where they basically got everything translated and done, so because they knew Ikeda and uh, the publisher were very finicky about how they demanded things, so they made sure they had all their dots and eyes crossed and dotted before they even went forward to release and stuff like that. They did it all in one. So sounds similar, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's all, that's all you want to bring up uh, for now. I know we'll talk a little more when we, uh, well, we'll talk next week, right? That's what comes to mind. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know what I forgot to do at the beginning of the episode? How will they reach us, Mike? Well, well, first of all, we're almost done for the episode. So uh, just quickly, um, do we want to bring up, like we, uh, of course, we, the gag is we always mention our contact information and we joke about the things that we have a presence on or we've registered for, but haven't done anything for yet, like our Discord, like YouTube, like Twitch. And we're banding about a couple ideas eventually what to do when we start going there. Kevin had a good one. Do we want to bring that one up right now, or do we just want to keep that in the back pocket and surprise people if we ever get around to doing it? Because I think I'd love to mention, I think it's a great idea, but I think if we put it out there, we might be pressured to event to do it sooner rather than later. I think we can keep it in the back pocket, so to speak, but Agreed. we can tease a bit, uh, Mike, and say that one day, hopefully before... Uh, DVD and Blu-ray goes uh, the way of uh, beta. We might go through ah, your mountain. Ah. Oh, Jesus Christ. I think we'll edit that part out. But in any event... Uh, you mean we that's... can't be like the History Channel and be like, <laughs> what was it, American Pickers? It's like anime Canadian Pickers edition or something? We could do, we could do, we could do Well, the thing is, we're not, do, we're not doing Storage Wars. Yeah. Yep! So... Anyway, so that's all we they, got. Where can they find us, Mike? <laughs> right, yeah, well, that's all we got for this episode. We did mention those, but uh, if you do want to get in on any of what we said tonight, any of the conversation, you can contact us, of course, uh, via email, animeroundtable at gmail.com. Questions and comments are always appreciated. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Anime Roundtable, and please give us a follow on those two formats or those two sites or social medias or whatever the terms are, because you'll almost surely hear from whoever owns them. And don't forget our website, animeroundtable.com. Show notes and past episodes are available there. 
And wherever you're listening to this, please, uh, if you could, give us a review because good reviews will help us get on the good side of the algorithm and hopefully more people will be able to see this episode. Yeah, that five-star review would really help. Like, no no lie. And <laughs> no joke. But if I yeah. want to give a constructive review, Kevin, can I do that? Of course you can. Also, word of mouth never hurts. We typically do episodes once every other week, but as the pandemic series uh, hopefully reaches its conclusion, who knows the, at the rate things are going, we might do episodes in between during our off weeks. Regardless, wherever you're hearing this, watching this, listening to this, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified whenever something new drops. But that's all we got for tonight. So until next time, probably until next week, thanks for listening. Good night from Toronto. Join us again for another edition of the Anime Roundtable.